This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We will win this, and we, as far as I'm concerned, we all already have won it. We believe we're on track to win this election. And of course, that was President Trump and President, uh, Vice President Biden last night. I do want to mention a headline crossing the Bloomberg, uh, Joe Biden uh, winning the state of Wisconsin. That is coming from the Associated Press. As we know, there were still uh, a few races that are yet to be called. But again, the Associated Press just calling uh, Wisconsin, the state of Wisconsin, for Vice President uh, Joe Biden. Well, it is the day after the election. We still don't have a winner uh, for the White House, uh, and instead we've got a date that we are hearing nonstop from state officials and governors who are continuing to count the vote. Great to get back to uh, someone who has been one of our go-to voices throughout the election season. Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis, former Republican strategist, former manager of Senator John McCain's presidential campaign and partner at Stonecourt Capital. He is back with us on the phone from Virginia. How late were you up? Uh, well, uh, it's not so much of being late. I think I was up early. I, I left uh, Bloomberg headquarters in Washington last night at about 4.30 in the morning. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. And we just uh, had the AP calling Wisconsin for Biden. Yep. Um, you know, it's interesting. We've gone from listening nonstop to state COVID updates to nonstop state updates on the vote. Is there still a path to victory, Rick, in your view, to 270 votes for both Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Yes, uh, uh, certainly both men have an opportunity to win. Uh, the pathway for Joe Biden is much more direct, uh, is simply put. He's currently at about 237 electoral votes, with including um, uh, Minnesota's, uh, Wisconsin, as you mentioned, has just broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really, just to get to 270, uh, to give you an idea, is he's, he's winning right now in both Michigan, Arizona, and Nevada, and that gives him 270. So it's a three-state step, uh, the most direct route that Joe Biden's got. In order for Donald Trump to win, he's really almost got to shoot the moon. He's, he's at 213 electoral votes right now. And he not only has to try to hold those states that we just discussed, but then pick up Pennsylvania. And uh, that is a dead heat as, as we talk. So um, uh, right now, I would say the most likely winner of this election is Biden based on where the current counts stand today. Uh, as Donald Trump said last night, stop counting. If they stop counting now, he loses. So I'm not sure that strategy was a particularly good one. Well, that's interesting. So let's get into it. What, what you know, we've already seen cases filed even before Election Day. We continue to see them. We just mentioned one uh, about the count in uh, Michigan specifically. I mean, what are your expectations about how that ultimately plays out and kind of delays us uh, deeming a winner at this point, Rick? Yeah, I think it's mostly a delay, not so much a change. Uh, Each of these states have their own uh, rules associated with recounts, and that's what we're really talking about here. The the states will finish up their business accounting these votes uh, sometime in the next day or two, Uh, and that's what we anticipated. There was a record amount of early votes. Many of these states, uh, like Pennsylvania, don't even start counting them until after the election day votes are counted. Right. And, 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 and it's a historic turnout. And so all those things combined 
added time to this uh, election count. After the counts are certified, within 10 days or after 10 days, depending upon which state you're in, the, the loser has a chance, if he's within either a half a point in some states or one point, to contest and um, do a recount. Uh, it's it's the loser's request. And so in some cases, the president may want to request a recount uh, if he's within that half a point margin of error. Okay, so that's how it could play out legally. I mean, is this a case where you anticipate that this goes all the way to the Supreme Court? Are there any similarities to 2000? Well, on a parallel track, there is talk on the president's part last night about taking it to Supreme Court. That is different than asking for a recount. Okay. And, and if he takes it to the Supreme Court, it's likely to be the same case that they took last week that the court didn't hear. And that was uh, whether or not to invalidate ballots that arrive after Election Day. In many of these states, they have rules, like in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, that if uh, you mail your ballot by Election Day and it comes afterwards, it's still a good ballot. And the president has always had the ap- uh, uh, approach that if uh, a ballot shows up after Election Day, it should be invalidated. And so that is a case where they've taken it to the Supreme Court once. It's likely that's what he was talking about last night. It's likely that they'll take that again to the Supreme Court. And, and we'll see what the Supreme Court says. Uh, the fact that they didn't hear it uh, is not necessarily an indication that they'll throw it out. What makes it a Supreme Court issue versus, and we're going to talk about the legal aspect in a little bit, but let me just put it to you also, because you understand this world. I mean, what would make it a Supreme Court case versus this is the state's right to determine how they handle the election ballots? That's right. And, 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 and states do have different uh, requirements. In every single state, there's some difference in how elections are adjudicated. Uh, in this case, it's about invalidating a bona fide uh, a ballot. And the, and the federal government does protect uh, the rights of voters, uh, but it also does not see the rights of voters to go beyond state law. And in some of these cases, state law is a little ambiguous as to mm-hmm. what it says about voting on an election day and then uh, allowing ballots to come in after the fact. These are usually laws that were on the books before there was early voting or before absentee ballots were so popular. Right. And so 90% of the voting was done on election day, and, that, and there really was never posed a problem. You know, Rick, I do wonder, based on the outcome and the states that were won, the close races that were out there, can you determine maybe what strategies worked for each of the candidates, what mattered among voters, whether it was COVID or the economy? What can you tell about kind of the specifics of strategy and kind of what mattered to voters? Well, I think both of the campaigns were successful at expanding the voter pool. In other words, uh, it'll be one of the largest turnouts in modern political history. And Mm -hmm. so both campaigns should be congratulated for finding new voters who otherwise have not been participating. There were voters turning out in millions who had not voted in the last probably uh, 10 to 15 years in presidential elections. So so getting those to the polls uh, was a great accomplishment for both parties. Uh, Donald Trump was successful, especially in places like uh, Florida, uh, finding votes that he otherwise uh, hadn't been getting in the past. Uh, that includes uh, a larger percentage of uh, uh, people of color uh, in, in Dade County. That would include uh, Cuban-Americans who were susceptible to the uh, uh, charges of calling uh, Joe Biden a socialist, right. and also uh, penetrating the African-American community in certain parts of the state, uh, and, and even penetrating a little bit the 
suburbs, which you would not have thought uh, he was going to get that vote back after the uh, various uh, approaches he took to, uh, uh, you know, sort of his law and order approach. I would say Joe Biden really got much better at rebuilding the Democratic Party base. If you'll notice, the states that he's winning that Donald Trump took were traditionally Democratic states, uh, where he's ahead in places like um, Wisconsin and uh, 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 Minnesota and mm-hmm. and Michigan, uh, you know, these were states that, that Democrats used to be able to rely heavily on that, that Hillary Clinton lost to, to, to Donald Trump. And so he did a much better job of organizing the Democratic Party and, and keeping it together, even though he's running as a centrist and the energy and activists in the party tend to be toward on the liberal side. Uh, but he, he managed that well. So So both had talent. Uh, and in a closely contested election, what we really learned is just how divided the politics in America is today. Yeah, that is for certain. I feel like if there's anything that we can kind of take away from that, um, from this election, what I do wonder, too, is how does it shape what happens in 2024, especially when you look at a Biden win in Arizona, you know, watching some of the close races in the South? I mean, is the South now historically has been re- Republican now at play? Carol, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's worth noting that Florida is a, a split, right? Anybody could win that state, Republican or Democrat. Georgia is now on the map as a uh, swing state. Uh, Arizona, which hasn't uh, voted but once in the last uh, 30 years for a Democratic president, uh, is now got two Democratic senators uh, elected statewide over the last four years. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and so I think that you're right. I think there is a new game in town, which is how do you cobble together these, especially communities like Atlanta and, mm-hmm. and, and South Florida and Maricopa County in Arizona, Phoenix, that are just fast growth, heavy new populations coming into the state that sometimes reflect a different set of politics. And right. the Democrats, I think, have done a better job of attracting those voters right now than the Republicans have. Hey, really quickly, 45 seconds polling. Fool me once, fool me twice. Um, what do we have to do to get it right? And is it that we just don't understand, essentially, the Trump voter? And just quickly. Well, when you look at the, the election, it was an incredibly stable election. I mean, the polling for the last 60 days has basically been, you know, Biden by a little, uh, Trump, you know, coming from behind. There have been polls uh, that have shown double-digit leads right. by Joe Biden going into the election, but most of them were single digits in these states, and that's what we got, very close races in all the key states. So uh, there'll be a lot of internal looking at how these things were done, but when you have a historic turnout of over 150 million million people, most of the models are going to be wrong. Gosh, what a, what a, what a week, what a year, <laughs> and it's not over. Hey, Rick, thank you so much. Uh, always look forward to our conversations and your insight. Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis, he is former Republican strategist, as I mentioned earlier, former manager of uh, Senator John McCain's presidential campaign, and he's a partner at Stonecourt Capital. He's been uh, great coming on our air to talk about this campaign and this election. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, listen, we've read and followed his reporting so closely. He's gone through all the different types of voters that would determine the outcome of election. Uh, Back with us, and so delighted to have with him, Josh Green. He's national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek, author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Nationalist Uprising. Josh joins us on the phone from D.C. Also with us, delighted as well, Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Joel Weber. He's on the access line in Brooklyn. But I feel like, you know, uh, Joel, we have been talking with Josh, whether 
it was, you know, key female voters, shy Trumpers, Floridians with past felony convictions. We've been covering it all with Josh. You, you forgot about one of my favorites, which was Maricopa <laughs> County. And that's actually kind of where I want to start with him. Good. Uh, and we've got plenty more Josh Green coming uh, as well. And we hope to talk to him again tomorrow. But but Josh, let's start with that. I mean, at the beginning of the year in pre pandemic times, the before times, I'm sure you remember them as fondly as I do. We were talking about what our election year strategy was going to be. And you were like, you know, it's not about the cities. It's not about the rural area. It's about the suburbs. And you pointed to Maricopa County, which you ended up writing about in the election issue, which was over the summer. And I'm wondering how you feel about that story now. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I don't say this about all my work, uh, but that one was was prescient. And it, it sure looks like it, it holds up because, uh, you know, Joe Biden, the Democrats are winning uh, Arizona, at least according to AP uh, and Fox News. And, uh, you know, they did it because they really carried Maricopa County with strong numbers. Now, I should probably say the Trump folks have not conceded Arizona. I uh, still think they have a path to victory. And given the level of polling error, I wouldn't rule anything out. But if you step back and look at the bigger picture, clearly what we saw in Maricopa is what we saw in suburbs all across the country, uh, which is we, we, we've seen a red to blue transition under Trump. Um, I, I do think it's worth saying, though, that part of the story uh, of the suburbs is what we expected to happen there last night uh, didn't happen quite the way uh, that, that most analysts were predicting. And that was just a massive wave that would sweep away Republican congressmen and smaller, uh, you know, red-leaning suburbs uh, like some in Texas and Missouri, uh, New Mexico, places like that. Um, what we actually saw was was the blue wave from 18 begin to ebb and kind of come back a little bit in the other direction. But, uh, you know, net net, the, the suburbs have moved in a way that they're going to be responsible for Joe Biden's victory if he wins. And right now it looks like he's winning. So let's talk about suburbs elsewhere uh, other than, you know, the Maricopa one, which, by the way, I was watching uh, Fox News last night when Fox called it for Arizona and the amount of just on air uh, uh, tension that it was like palpable. I mean, it was just like nonstop for the next several hours, actually. You could tell the president was just calling people. But, you know, one of the thesis there was like what, what happens in Maricopa County, and this is in your story. What happens in Maricopa County basically translate to suburbs at writ, writ large across the country. Did that part hold up? Um, you know, it, it, it did. It just didn't go as far as uh, a lot of people were expecting. I mean, basically, the story of the suburbs, and this even predates Trump, is that they've moved from white-collar, college-educated, uh, Republican, uh, Republican voting uh, people to, you know, much more... Um, multicultural group who increasingly have been voting Democrat. And we that, that process has been going on for a while now. Part of it is that, uh, you know, as I wrote in Business Week, the suburbs are, are becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. But a big part of it under Trump is the attitudes of college-educated white voters are just changing. And that process really sped up under Donald Trump, and it certainly hasn't gone away. Um, I, I think what was interesting that, that we saw last night was that there appear to be limits to it. And one of the big questions I had going in was, uh, you know, in 2018, a lot of Republican strategists said, you know, we may not be in that bad shape because, you know, 
even though you know we we, we lost we're going to have Trump on the ballot in 2020. We didn't have that in 2018. And we think that a lot of our voters will come out uh, to support Trump. And Democrats universally did not believe that. Well, it turned out that people really are, um, you know, driven to the polls by Trump on the one hand and also willing to split their tickets. So what we saw in some of these red leaning suburbs was that uh, college educated voters were voting against Trump, but still willing to vote for their Republican member of Congress, which I think is interesting and one reason the Democrats didn't win back the Senate and uh, are going to have a much smaller margin in the House. You know, it's really interesting. I just uh, spoke just before you guys spoke with uh, Rick Davis. Uh, he ran, um, was manager of Senator John McCain's presidential campaign. And he thought it was interesting. And he thought that now the South is essentially in play based on kind of what happened in Arizona. You know, he, he brought up that point that it's going to be different 2020, 20, 2024, excuse me, like already thinking about how the outcomes here impacted what's to come and, and, and also just kind of commended both candidates in that they found new voters, people who hadn't voted for years. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, one of the stories of, of, of Republican success and, and Trump's success to the extent that, you know, he's not going to lose this, this race by 10 points the way a lot of pollsters were predicting was he did manage to turn out a lot of voters who hadn't supported him in 2016. Some of those are white working class voters. They might be shy, shy Trumpers who don't want to talk to pollsters, or it may just be that pollsters couldn't couldn't find them to interview them. You know, part of the other story is Trump's increased margins among Latinos, especially Latino men. That was hugely costly to Democrats in in Florida, uh, all across the uh, southern part of Texas, where Democrats were hoping to win back Republican seats and didn't. Um, so, so he certainly brought in new voters. But, you know, Biden, on the other hand, if he wins, it's going to be because he won back a chunk of that blue collar vote in the upper Midwest that Hillary right. lost. And right now that looks like his path to victory. Josh, can we uh, come up to speed with where things currently stand? Wisconsin was recently just a couple minutes ago called by CNN and AP for, for uh, Biden. Uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada. Georgia, all all sort of uh, the ones that everyone is watching and, and will basically determine the outcome. What are what are you most interested in how in all of this? So having having talked to people in both camps just in the last couple of hours, the Biden people feel very confident that they have 270 electoral votes that they're going to carry so to, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, although that may take quite a while, that they'll ultimately prevail in Nevada and that Biden will be the next president. They've been saying that since this morning. The Trump people, on the other hand, though, have a really interesting path that they claim is still open for them. Uh, that is that Trump will win Arizona, despite the fact that the AP has already called it for Joe Biden, um, that they will add in Pennsylvania, which they feel fairly confident that they can win, and that they will hold on in Georgia, where it looked like they were going to run away with it, and now things have gotten much closer. That would bring them up to 274 electoral votes, and it would give Trump a second term. So a lot to watch. Um, you know, both in the Electoral College and in the courts over the next couple of days. Well, exactly. And, you know, you talked about Wisconsin. We've just got a headline, you know, too, and a story that they're getting ready for a Trump recount request. We know he's already filed a lawsuit uh, in Michigan to kind of stop counting votes. So, I mean, this just continues to drag on, at least for a little bit longer, Josh. Definitely. Yeah, there's no question about that, that things are going to move to the courts now. I mean, this is this is you know, not quite the worst case scenario everybody envisioned mm-hmm. uh, heading into the election, but it's not that far off from it either. I mean, you have Trump having come out last night and essentially declared victory and fraud. Um, you have things close enough that these court battles really couldn't matter. Um, so, you know, people had been saying from the get-go, 
we may not know on election night. Um, that's definitely true. I think the hope is that we know in the next couple of days or certainly by this weekend, but no guarantee on that either. And Josh, any other final thoughts for you of, of uh, uh, anything else that's jumped out to you? I think what's jumped out to me is just what a terrible job pollsters and analysts in general did in calling this race. <laughs> Even if Biden wins, it's going to be narrow. It isn't a blue wave. Uh, Democrats didn't win by crushing margins in the House. And we can see consistently that uh, polls were off, not just by one or two or three points, but by seven or eight or nine points in key states. Right. This is after they were off in 2016 and, and the necessary adjustments were thought to have been made. Well, there, there are still some knobs that need to be fiddled here for these things to get accurate. Uh, to me, understanding how that all went wrong is one of the stories I'm going to be watching. I got to say, um, David Weston caught up with Frank Lutz, who does polling, as you know, big time. And he said, we've got to figure out how to understand the Trump voter, essentially, and just said that a lot of times you've got Trump voters and supporters who don't want to answer questions to pollsters because they don't like the media outlets that they represent or what have you, and then it tends to skew it. But we've got to be smarter about getting that voter. I don't know what you think about that, Josh. Just got about a minute. Be so. an, I think that may be an element of it, but mm. I also think that part of the problem is that pollsters just aren't managing to find the Trump voters to talk to. You know, I don't know that it's voters saying, you know, I hate you, I don't trust you, I'm not going to give you honest answers. I just think the pollsters have made a lot of flawed assumptions. And, and the fact is, their jobs have gotten much more challenging. People don't answer their telephone landlines anymore. They've resorted to paying people to take online polls. Um, it, you know, as one Trump person I was talking to earlier today said, you know, the idea that that is going to lead to you know, a precise pinpoint forecast of how an election going to turn, is going to turn out is just insane. And I think we've yeah. seen the results already that there's something to that. Well, I'm waiting for your next book. I'm just thinking, Josh, this has been a great year um, in terms of and an interesting uh, year to write about. That's for sure. Uh, Bloomberg's, of course, Josh Green joining us uh, from D.C. He's our national correspondent at Bloomberg Business Week. And of course, our thanks to Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber joining us on the Access Line in Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay? All right. Of course, that was President Donald Trump saying last night, or actually it was kind of the wee hours of this morning, uh, saying he will go to the U.S. Supreme Court because he wants all voting to stop as he tries to kind of hold on to some of his early leads in key battleground states. Of course, this election continuing to evolve on this uh, Election Day Wednesday again, it feels like. Um, I got to say, I saw it live last night when the president made those comments. Let's get into what is legally at stake and what can legally be done, because there's kind of two different things, the Supreme Court issue versus kind of some of the lawsuits that we're already seeing uh, begin to happen. June Grasso is legal analyst, co-host of Politics, uh, actually, yeah. Bloomberg Law. Bloomberg Law. Sorry, I kind of forgot the name of it. (laughs) On the phone in New York City, Greg Storr, who is Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg News. Greg is on the phone in D.C. So good to have you both here with us. Um, Greg, let me just start for you. Let me just kind of big picture, because I think we see Supreme Court. Are we headed to the Supreme Court here? No, we are, Carol. Uh, you know, we all think back to 2000, Bush versus Gore. 
that was really a perfect storm where you had one state that made the difference. That state was uh, had a difference of 537 votes. Um, we're not there yet in this case. Um, it's certainly possible there will be some legal fighting. But, you know, Donald Trump, uh, if he's going to challenge the results, has to get a legal issue uh, that, that raises the problem either under federal statute or federal or the Constitution. And that has to be a legal issue that would make a difference, that would actually swing the election in his direction. Um, and it's not clear we have that yet. All right, June, come on in on this. You must have been like, okay, like, where do I begin? So what are some <laughs> of the legal issues? There's a lot going on because as soon as, you know, we've seen the cases kind of going into the election and we continue to see them come from uh, certainly right at this point, the Trump campaign. Right. There are a lot of legal issues, but I agree completely with Greg that it doesn't look like right now that you have a legal issue in a state. And it has to be a state that's going to be a tipping point in the Electoral College and is decided by a razor thin margin. And you're litigating over this pool of contested votes that would change the result. And tip the election. So, so far you have, for example, uh, just this afternoon the Trump campaign said that it's suing to stop Michigan from counting any more votes. Now, the problem with this is that what they're saying is that they weren't getting access to the counting, enough access, and they weren't getting, and they've used this in other states before and it hasn't worked. So, and the other problem is that Michigan has said that they're likely to finish counting most of the votes by tonight. So will a judge intervene at this point to stop the Michigan count? Very unlikely. In Pennsylvania, you have the case that, you know, we've talked about before where the Supreme Court said that Pennsylvania at this point could count the ballots that come mm -hmm. in three days after the election. So those ballots are being segregated. And as Greg can tell you better, but, you know, the four conservative justices indicated they might be open after the election to looking at that. There's also in Pennsylvania another, uh, another lawsuit about a county that, it's one county, and it probably only involves around 49 votes, according to the county officials, and whether or not they were, they were reaching out to voters who had problems with their ballots and saying, you want to come in and fix it, basically. But is that enough to, you know, to, to merit any kind of, you know, litigation? So it, it all depends. And, and I think that they're also going to go after absentee ballots and provisional mm -hmm. ballots. The, pro, the provisional ballot is when you come in and maybe you're in the wrong, the wrong, uh, election place right. or maybe someone challenges you and then so those are questions but how many provisional ballots and absentee ballots are having problems that's the that's the point right and and it gets to greg i think too what you were talking about how close a race is you know whether it's going to be a state that would be a tipping point you know i mean there's a lot that goes into it before it makes sense uh on a legal level yeah and one distinction to make you mentioned that pennsylvania case that's at the supreme court uh, that case, if it were to happen, would be about ballots that were cast before Election Day or by Election Day and didn't arrive until up to three days later. We don't know how many ballots that is. You know, maybe it's in the tens of thousands. I'm, I, I'm, that's just conjecture. Um, what you heard the president say last night, he was talking about stopping the voting. Right. Um, and, and, and that's something very different. There's no legal claim to stop. Well, first of all, we weren't, um, we weren't no, voting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody is voting anymore. Um, and, and it, you know, he wouldn't even be able to stop. There's really no legal claim to stop the counting of votes that were clearly cast in time. We're only talking about, in the Supreme Court case, a relatively small segment of votes that were cast on time but haven't arrived yet. 
Also, Carol, yeah. I think it's a difference when you're challenging votes that have been cast by voters who have relied on the rules in place. Mm -hmm. So if that goes to the Supreme Court, let's just say it goes to the Supreme Court, is the court going to say, no, we're going to discount your votes, voters, even though, you know, we know what the outcome would be if those votes were counted and we know you relied upon the rule that we set in place? So um, I think that's a, another point that it has to be considered. And also, for example, in the Pennsylvania case where they're challenging the way that they're, they're asking people to come in and sort of cure their ballots. Well, why didn't they do that before? Have they waited too long to do that? Apparently they've been doing that for a long time there. Yeah. So I think there's a lot, there might be a lot of litigation, but I'm not sure that any of it is going to be sort of serious litigation. Yeah, I think it's really pretty interesting. I mean, I do wonder, Greg, you know, at some point, do we need to kind of take a bigger, deeper dive you know, into kind of the voting system and how it works. I know it's up to individual states, but you do wonder, we were talking earlier about it could be so much easier with an app and we could just do it and kind of clear <laughs> up some of the confusion. Just got about 40 seconds left. Yeah, that's got to be something that everybody can agree on after after yesterday and today, um, that our system of voting in this country is really, really complicated, and it shouldn't be that complicated because you have all these state rules and then you have the federal law overlaid on top of that uh, in the Electoral College. And, uh, yes, there's all sorts of potential for confusion and a feeling that uh, that the voters might not have had their say in a yeah, and forgive me, we've got still some more time. Well, you know, June, come on in on this, because I do think we all go to the poll or we fill out our ballot, mail it in, and just assume that we can trust these systems. And, and it really does beg the question. It's kind of funny when I'm filling out a ballot and I'm filling in circles, you know, that in such a high-tech world that we can't figure out a better way that secures it so that we don't have to have these legal questions, uh, certainly a day after an election. Right. But the, the other side of that, and of course, you know, everyone's all for like using an app and everything. The other side of that is if you don't have some kind of a, a paper ballot backup, mm -hmm. then what happens when you want to check the votes? It's, it's all on computer. Are you going to trust that? And is there going to be, you know, how are you going to do that? So that's another problem is that in past elections, they've said that they need a paper ballot backup because that's the way you can trace everything. That's the way you know where things came from. So and, you know, the problem is that, you know, as Greg said, this is all based state to state and county to county within the state. So you have all it's not like your vote. It's the presidential election. But what you're really <laughs> voting is counties in states. You know, I don't know how many across the country. And if there was more consistency, at least. It wouldn't be as it is now where you're just every time someone, for example, Trump said that um, the Trump campaign is asking for a recount mm -hmm. in Wisconsin. So, OK, what are the rules in Wisconsin for a recount? It's it's one percent in Wisconsin, but it's half a percent difference in Georgia. And it's this right. and it's that. And it's so confusing. Well, and it's interesting because I think and I, I'm curious what each of you think about this. And, Greg, maybe you take it first, is I do think that there was a lot of nervousness leading up to this election about how much, you know, kind of legal wrangling there would be. Um, it does feel like, Greg, though, that it's kind of orderly right now. <laughs> yeah, really, um, you know, we had uh, relatively few election day disruptions. Mm -hmm. um, we had a flurry of activity at the Supreme Court the week before, but not so much in the you know, couple days immediately before. People seemed to know for the most part, what the rules were going to be. Uh, we do still have some lingering issues like the, you know, the, the late arriving ballots in, in Pennsylvania, but 
for the most part, uh, even if you disagreed with them, you probably knew what the basic rules for voting and counting the votes were uh, in, in all the swing states. Uh, so, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, given what we thought could happen, in, you know, like right on Election Day, uh, there was not that much chaos on that day. Yeah. June, what are your thoughts on this as you were expecting, you know, what might happen and versus well, what actually has so far, at least? Right. I think that people are not talking enough about the fact that all this violence was ex- expected or anticipated. You know, you had uh, cities where where the stores were boarding up their windows because of the fear of violence. And we, we really didn't hear about that. And I think that's really something to cheer about, that we're not talking about that the day after. Um, there are some minor incidents here and there, but but nothing that, you know, was so, so outstanding that we would have to talk about it. And um, I think, you know, Greg's right. We did, there are legions of lawyers out there for Mm -hmm. the Trump team, the Biden team, uh, civil rights lawyers, conservative lawyers, and they have war rooms set up. So hundreds and hundreds of lawyers. And we've just seen very few lawsuits so far. So I I think that, you know, all considering and all the different rules that we've been talking about and all the the controversy beforehand, that it's so far turned out pretty well. And to be fair, I mean, that's pretty par for the course in terms of elections. I mean, I think this has been an unusual year, and it's a year where a lot of things have been laid bare. We're seeing kind of how the sausage is made when it comes to things. And I think even with the election in terms of how many people vote in advance, how many states start counting in advance, um, there's a lot of things that maybe we didn't realize as as Americans, and it's all kind of coming out. And even, Greg, you know, to have both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans, the teams, having lawyers in place just in case that's pretty normal it is pretty normal um, you know it may be that there were more lawyers in in place than there were uh, four years ago or eight years ago but yes uh, certainly after Bush versus Gore it has been standard fare that both sides brace themselves and get ready for um, a, a legal fight over the election uh, and uh, you know, that's just the nature of our complicated election system, the fact that that, uh, our elections, presidential elections, are so close these days, uh, and the fact that we're we're a rather litigious society. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, it certainly has made for some interesting times. Um, Folks, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, your insight. June Grasso, she is, of course, Bloomberg News legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law. You can catch it weeknights at 10 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. And our thanks always to Greg Storr, our go-to when it comes to the Supreme Court here at Bloomberg News on the phone from Washington, D.C. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
Yes, indeed, it is time for the drive to the close. We do have equity markets rallying, coming off our highs of the session, but nonetheless, some pretty decent gains, certainly if you're a bull in this market. Uh, back with us is Ernesto Ramos. He leads the portfolio management and research teams for all equity strategy, strategies over at BMO Global Asset Management. Uh, and uh, they've got roughly $270 billion in assets under management. Ernesto, back with us on the phone from Chicago. Nice to have you here with us. How late did you stay up? <laughs> Hi, Carol. It's great to talk to you again. I actually, I actually couldn't take it for, so I went to bed early and I woke up this morning to check results quite early too. Uh, so um, yeah, it looks like we have a, a divided uh, win here. Uh, if, if Biden hangs on, which it looks like he might, and and uh, and a Senate in, in Republican hands, which uh, which is what we we've. Uh, we didn't anticipate. We anticipated the blue wave, but this was our second highest probability scenario, so that that came to fruition. All right. So you guys worked it all out. So what does it mean for then the financial markets? I mean, equity markets certainly weighing in today, despite being kind of erratic later. But I understand. I mean, last night and into the wee hours, because a lot of things kind of kept changing to some extent. Um, does the rally make sense to you today? Uh, if you look at, at, at the action here, at, uh, we think a lot of it has to do with unwinding trades that were anticipating a blue wave. Like, uh, but uh, you saw that the whole month of October and, and early November was a cyclical value rally, which anticipated a big, inf- which we think anticipated a big infrastructure uh, package uh, spend. From, from a Biden uh, Senate and a Biden presidency. Uh-huh. Now, we're clearly not going to get that, so I think it's a lot of unwinding of that, and that's why uh, secular growth and, and, and well, healthcare because the public option is probably off the table now for for uh, for, for the market. So that that's why healthcare is rallying. But you, just, you right. see the secular growth doing very well, the cyclicals and more value not doing as well, and and the, basically we think it's, it's an unwind of that position that took place for the last month and and a, and a week, if you want to. But I, but I do wonder what it means in terms of okay. So if we've got if we've got a Republican Senate, we've got a mixed Congress, and if we do end yeah. up with Joe Biden in the White House, but again, let's just remind everybody the race is yet to be called, and we've got lawsuits certainly yeah. coming. Yeah. We've seen more headlines from the Trump campaign, but I do wonder, um, especially when it comes to stimulus, if we have an economy that's going to need some assistance, and we don't get yeah. the biggest package that we yeah. need, yeah. I do wonder. Yeah the impact that that's going to have on the economy and ultimately it's going to have you know an impact on what goes on in the financial markets it ultimately will show up there so are you thinking about that are you worried about that as a matter of fact yeah we are thinking about that and we are a little bit more bearish on growth than we would have been with with a blue wave just for, for from the pure simple math that you just explained when you have a, a four trillion let's say trillion uh, a four trillion fiscal package, you're going to get a lot of government spending, a lot of infrastructure uh, projects that will accelerate growth. Now you have a, a, a divided Congress. You probably also might get a little bit more of a shutdown uh, to deal with the pandemic, given that that Biden is more prone to to doing some stuff like that than than the Republicans were. So net net, we think there's a slight negative effect short term for the economy. Now there's a positive longer term, which is if we get a better handle on the pandemic because we we do things in a more systematic coordinated and, and effective way dealing with that 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 long term will pay off but in the short and medium term call the next 
I don't know, three to six months, we might have a negative in the Uh fact that you don't get that package. Now, hopefully the consumer gets some relief in terms of uh, additional employment benefits and and the second round of PPE, but that's probably also going to be toned down from what it would have been had we had a united uh, Democratic president in in, in the Senate. So because uh, Biden will still have to deal with with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate who are going to be less inclined to give him what he wants had it been Trump asking for it or had it been as the Republican Senate uh, being uh, the one to give it to them. All right. So in a a crazy year, it's politics probably as usual. So that's interesting Um, and and to be expected. Hey, let's talk about a couple of names. I know our listeners like to get into it. Costco is a name that you like. Um, I guess it makes sense, right? Because consumers continue to shop there and they will increasingly so even if there's a shutdown again. Yeah, so, so the low volatility portfolio, the BMO low volatility portfolio, is, is right the perfect portfolio for this kind of situation where you have uh, potential additional shutdowns, potential additional stay-at-home, uh, not necessarily the strongest cyclical growth. And so these are consumer uh, defensive names like, like your Costco's of the world, your Kroger's of the world. Um, your auto zones of the world where people do self-repairs because they don't have a lot of excess money, a little bit of defensiveness by holding a company like Newmont, which gives you exposure to gold. When the markets go down, that, that helps you out. But, but really, it is a defensive portfolio. And the other thing that, that it does protect against its volatility, not only does it, does it uh, reduce the, the um, exposure to the economic cycle, but it also uh, dampens the moves up and down of your portfolio relative to what the market is doing. So on a day like today, we're going to lag. But on a day when the market is down hard, we're going to do a whole lot better than the market. And that's that's exactly the purpose behind the low-risk approach. What do you think about PepsiCo? Is it a similar idea or a little bit different? I know you also get a little bit of a dividend there as well. Oh, not to mention all of the names that we own basically in this portfolio, with a few exceptions, pay nice dividends because they're made up of stable uh, mature companies that have very strong operating fundamentals but are not growing at the rate that they need to all their capital to be reinvested in their own business. So they pay nice dividends. So our, our portfolio dividend rate is higher than that of, of, mm-hmm. of any of the benchmarks. And, and that's one of the benefits of, of owning an additional benefit and especially good in this environment with, so ma- with, with such low yields in the bond market that this is almost a a, a, um, a Bond-like in terms of income portfolio. Yeah, I'm hearing that. Fine. I'm hearing that from more and more investors, and I'm assuming then that's also so. Pepsi, obviously, with a dividend. Walmart, also, yeah. um, you know, which has got a nice little, you know, it's got a decent dividend as well. Stocks also up about twenty percent this year. Yeah, and, and these, again, Walmart is is, is not only a, a good stay-at-home name, but it's also one of the very few companies that's competing effectively against Amazon in the online space. Yeah. Uh, so it's got a lot of good things going for it, the dividend, the competition against Amazon, the stay-at-home nature of it, and the fact that it's a, it's a staples at the end of the day type of name. Uh, so, right. so you, you want to stay exposed to equity, and you, but we, we think we ought to do it in a, in, a, in a relatively defensive way because given right. the things you've seen in the last few months, uh, and the fact that the economy hasn't really followed the market as much as right. we would like it to. All right, going to leave it. It's, it's, 
Ernesto, I got to jump in because we're we're running down the clock here. Ernesto Ramos over at BMO Global Asset Management joining us on the phone in Chicago. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.